Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Dodger Dudes Show with former Dodger pitcher Brett Tomko and his Sandlot buddy Josh the Duker Luke. The Dodger Dudes talk Dodger baseball, Sandlot stories from their youth, and share what it's going to take for the Blue Crew to win the World Series. Don't forget to answer our weekly poll question and fan poll on Twitter and Facebook. The Dodger Dudes Show is part of the Believe Sports Network online at BLEAV.com. The Dodger Dudes believe in the Dodgers. Do you believe? Welcome back to the Dodger Dude Show with Josh, Luke, and Brett Tomko. We are uh, still talking with uh, former Padre closer Heath Bell. He's given us some awesome insight. Welcome back to the program, and let's just keep this conversation going. So, Heath, I asked Matt uh, when he was on and Brett this, and I think our listeners really like this. Um, who was the one guy that you ever played with on any of your teams that you just looked at and went, man, this is so easy for this, this guy's so gifted. He could do anything. He makes it look so easy, whether a pitcher or a hitter. Tell us who that was that stands out in your mind and why. Uh, probably Greg Maddox. Oh, yeah. Greg Maddox was – so, like, I, I was very fortunate to play with, you know, Tom Glavin with the Mets, um, um, Pedro Martinez with the Mets. Jeez. Um, let's see, you know, Adrian Gonzalez hitting-wise, uh, Mike Piazza hitting, um, Trevor Hoffman. But, like, Greg Maddox would literally open his mail before a game. He'd be talking about um, fantasy baseball, not fantasy football. He'd be all watching golf before a game. He'd be, like, chipping or putting. Every place we'd go, he'd have his golf clubs, go play, you know, like 28 holes, and then show up to a game. He played catch with the wall, <laughs> unless did. it was his day of pitching, and then he played catch with the catcher warming up. And he would just go out there, and, I mean, he would do all these things. He would, he would like, you know, we'd get into a hotel, and he'd walk up to random people checking in and just fart right behind them and <laughs> – think nothing of it and he all he did all these other pranks and he just it was like he was just a big kid having a great time and no worries that anybody's gonna get mad at him i asked him once i said hey uh greg forgive me for asking but like is there like some accomplishment you're trying to achieve like so many wins or games and you know like um you know, I'm just wondering, like, you've had a great career, a Hall of Fame career. I mean, do you just love playing? That's why you keep playing? He goes, no, they keep paying me $10 million a year. So I'm like, why not? <laughs> That's true. I've heard that same story. That's... They pay me $10 million, I go play golf and pitch every five days. He goes, yeah, I've it... heard those Braves teams had like, – I heard Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox had – they were as intense about their golf, and they were playing once or twice a week, just as intense as – I mean, those guys were legendary pitchers. But I, and I, I asked some of our catchers, like, how do you call? And he goes, I don't call any pitch that Maddox does. He calls every single pitch is how he catches the ball yep. on going back. And I'm like, what? You know, like I tried to watch and I still couldn't figure out <laughs> That's crazy. how he turned his glove. The way he caught it was what his next pitch was. He knew three pitches ahead what he was going to do even before he threw a ball or a strike. And I, that was amazing to me. I don't know. Alex Cora about that, Brett. I don't know if I, I'm not sure if I told this story already, but like <clears throat> I was sitting in the, in the dugout with Maddox and he walks up to me and said, Hey, let's play this game and i'm like okay he's like what's this guy gonna do up, up to hit and i was like i don't know greg he's like he's gonna he's gonna hit a ground ball a second and i go okay I, he's gonna hit, hit a fly ball i don't know yeah. next pitch ground ball to second i was like what 
And then he goes, what's this guy going to do? I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know where you're going with this, Greg. He's like, pop up, shortstop. Sure enough, pop up to shortstop. I'm like, how are you doing this? And he goes, and, and during a game, like he said, he's a big kid. He's pulling pranks. He's not, it doesn't even yeah. look like he's paying attention to what's going on. And the whole game, he's been messing with me the whole game. And then he comes out and tells me exactly what these people are going to do. And he goes, well, the first at bat, um, whoever was pitching, he threw him, you know, two balls outside. He did this. So I figured this at bat, he was going to try to jam him. He's going to saw him off. Like he could, te- he knew more about what was going on in the game than, than anyone knew. Yeah. If the first three innings, if you paid attention to him and then talked to him in the fourth inning, you probably thought the first three innings, he wasn't watching the game at all. Fourth inning, he'd tell you every single thing that happened in those first three innings. Yeah, he was a different he was a different yeah. breed. He was a lot he and it was one of those things. You I think the first he got traded to the Dodgers when I was there. I was like, holy crap, Greg yeah. Maddox is on the team. Like, how cool is this gonna be? And we were out in the in the outfield and I was struggling at that point. And he walks up and he's like, Hey, what's going on? I'm like, Man, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like back in the day, it just seemed easy. Like I go out there and I'd like, you know, seven innings, you know, give up a couple runs, no big deal. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It's like, Hey, you want to know, you want to know the key to pitching? And I was like, no way. Greg Madison going to tell me that I thought like the heavens were going to part. There was going to be like golden rays of sunshine coming down on me. And I'm waiting. I'm looking around, making sure no one else is going to hear the key to pitching. <laughs> and he goes, you know those days when you have really good stuff? Like, your breaking ball is breaking. You're spotting your fastball. Like, you can throw the ball wherever you want. I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, those don't happen very often. He's all, the days that they don't happen, you better keep the ball at the knees. And he walked away. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, the, no, wait. You told me you're going to give me the like, key to pitching. Like, I'm, I'm expecting this, like, 45-minute, like, dissertation powerpoint everything and he's like no no no, but that that's it that's that that's that's the key if you don't have your great stuff keep the ball at the knees yeah you don't have to throw hard you don't have much wisdom and that was like uh, it was mind-blowing because it was like is that how simple and he goes we can go more into it and really talk about it but like in a nutshell that's that's what pitching is and i was like to simplify it that much and i really from then on out like when everything got bad and i couldn't figure out what was going on i always thought about that like I'm going to try to keep the ball at the knees. Yeah, there was one time he came up to me in 07 when I was with the Padres for the first year. And he goes, hey, kid, uh, do you try to throw your fastball different speeds? And I just went, well, I, yeah, I mean, I try to – I didn't know because this is Greg Max, So I'm like, uh, what's the right <laughs> answer? He's like he's always setting you up for, to make and, you look dumb or something. Yeah, <laughs> and because he would be the, hey, I bowled 301 yesterday. Have you ever bowled a game? I bowled 301. And people would go – Dude, you can't ball 301. He goes, dude, I bowled the 300 and won the game. You're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I went to him and I was like, well, you know, I, I try to throw my fastball my, my hardest. And then occasionally I try to throw a little bit harder. And if I'm struggling, I take a little bit less off. Or if I'm really trying to hit my spot. And he goes, good. Because if you always throw like 80, you know, 90, 98 or 100 miles an hour, they're eventually going to hit you. So just keep mixing it up. Throw 92, 94, 98, 90, 91. Switch it up. Maybe that's what maybe that's what Kenley has to do. Just simplify everything to down to the basics, and and really just try to to just you know hit spots. We talked about a lot about that that he misses a lot of spots and he gets in trouble. And that's maybe he just needs to simplify. Maybe he needs to be maddoxified. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's what happened with Joe Kelly, right? I mean, earlier in the year, he was just getting lit, and they just went, hey, get rid of the two seam, go back to the four seam, and all of a sudden, the guy's just like he was last year. I got a question for you, Heath. Um, you know, those games that you do, and I've, I've always thought this, you know, I, like I said, I was a, a, a triple-A closer for six weeks, so I, I, 
I, I know everything about closing, right? <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, so those, those games were, you know, you go out there and, and you have a three-run lead and you give it up. Not that you did it at a time, but you give it up and yeah, you yeah. go home. What is going through your mind that whole night going into tomorrow? <laughs> and as a joke, do you feel bad for the starting pitcher that like, or is it just part of the process? Like, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to get back after it. What goes through your mind? Because what's going through Jansen's mind as you know, he gets these blown saves? Going me home? personally, I felt the worst for the starting pitcher and the guys on the field, especially the starter. I felt really bad that I screwed up. And I remember once saying something like, you know, hey, I just didn't have it that day, you know. Um, and it was like setting up for Trevor. And I think – I'm not sure if we won the game or not. Maybe maybe I just blew the save, but then we came back and won. Well, Trevor pulled me aside and goes, never say that you didn't have it or you feel bad because that will make the starter go, like, were you not ready? Huh? But personally, I felt really bad. And I know some closers, closers – Probably didn't feel bad. They're like, hey, it's just the way things are. <laughs> we used to joke around like, oh, it's not my runs. Like yeah. as, as a reliever, when you go in there with inherited runs, which, which – Oh, yeah, that would, that would be all the time. If it was inherited runs – if I blew the game and it was inherited runs, yeah, I didn't feel as bad as I did <laughs> if it was my runs. Knew, I knew it. I knew it. Always. It's like not my runs. But, <laughs> but I, always, I always like – I felt bad giving up those runs for those guys. But in that situation, I, I would feel really bad for the starter. And I would just try to make, you know, I'd go work out or just go relax and in the gym or just try to visualize what did I do wrong? How can I do better next time so I don't make this mistake? And then what really helped me is I'd go home and watch um, like an action movie, mm. you know, so like some, and I'd pretend like I was that hero, <laughs> like Rambo or somebody. That's kind of what helped me. I just wanted an action movie, kind of get lost into that movie and forget about everything that happened before. So when you come the next day, it's it's out of your mind or it's, or is it still there? And then when you get game mode and you start warm up, it's it's long gone? It's it's literally gone all day long. But what did I have to do to correct it? Like say my breaking ball wasn't good and I hung it. So the next day I'd be there working on my breaking ball just because I knew I needed to make sure that was a little bit better the next day but I literally forgot about it you know if I blew a game Monday Tuesday I'd completely forget about it but I always had in the back of my mind okay I need to make sure that you know my changeup or my hit my uh, hit spot with a fastball or have my curveball needs to be better today or I can't throw this pitch to that person like in San Diego was beautiful thing we're we're on the west coast I would literally watch two series down the road say we're playing the Cubs we're going to Chicago and it's Monday, but we're playing like um, Arizona, and then we're playing L.A., then we're going to Chicago. I'd be watching the Cubs games on TV and watching the last three innings. Who's coming up with a big hit? Who's doing this? Especially if they were facing a righty, and that's what I'd watch on video, not to facing a lefty, but a righty, somewhat similar to me late in the game because there was guys like Manny Ramirez, he would look horrible on a curveball first two of bats just because he knew the late – to, you know, the setup guy or the closer had a great curveball and he'd just be sitting that pitch. Yeah. He'd give up. He was the one guy that he, I knew that he'd give up an out early just to set up later in the game. Or some guys would be like, okay, I'm going to wait and sit this one pitch for this closer, this setup guy, and I'm going to get him. Like uh, Jimmy Rollins used to do that. And it's just one of those things that I'd pay attention because guys would have different approaches, batters then early in the game to late in the game. Some guys just wanted to hit the ball and get on base. Some guys wanted to hit a big, and those are the guys you could strike out. But the guys that were home run hitters but late in the, late in the game only wanted to make contact and just get on. 
right. to start and a rally. I, so I would pay attention to that all the time. So if we went to Chicago knowing this guy came up big, so if he comes in that situation, he's he feels like he's going to come through with the in that situation. So I got to be a little bit more careful pitching. Right. And I think a lot of people think the normal fan and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, but you know, closers are just sitting down there for eight innings, kind of not paying attention to what's going on. They get the, the phone rings, they warm up, they go in there and they face three batters. I think what makes, you know, great closers the best is that they're paying attention. And, and I got to ask you, what, what do you think makes a great closer? Are you asking me? Well, um, you both are you asking Heath? Well, I, well I'm kind of asking Heath because he yeah, was a great closer. I, I, I think being a great closer is you got there's it's the easiest way to do it is there's got to be a screw loose. Yeah, you have to be a little bit different because people are always like, do you ever get nervous in that situation? I'm like, well, what is nervous? Nervous is like an emotion. It's like happy and sad. Well, a lot of people there's sets. There's people out there like to be sad. That's kind of a bad thing. Everybody likes to be happy. I like to be nervous. When there's a situation that's nervous, I feel the best. Sure. It's kind of like the extreme sports guys. Yeah. When I, I like that. That makes me the happiest. Wow. So how often do you guys study how particularly <laughs> say So I know my brother always faced the closer. He was the left-handed pitch hitter off the bench. And I always thought, hey, did you go back and look? I mean, he faced Hoffman, I think, four times in 98. And I'm going, do you go back and look how he started you off? each time first pitch second pitch location pitch do you guys do that as pitchers i mean i know the catcher does that's that's the catcher's job right i face trevor often about sequencing i i I mean as a starting pitcher absolutely i mean you're setting up game plans because i mean we got more time to kill we got four days in between starts we know who we're facing we can kind of look ahead and go these are the guys that are hot these are i mean that was a big thing that i what he he said it great who's hot who's not because you know you could kind of set your game plan around. I don't want these guys to hurt me. But as a closer, I mean, you're almost – you said, like, you wanted to be an everyday player. As a closer, you're basically an everyday player. Yeah. Well, for me, yeah, that's what I loved about closing. It was everyday player, you know, where I didn't mind not starting because I'd have to wait. I'd only get to play once or twice a week. But um, for me, it was – I wanted to know every day or come in every series who didn't swing at the first pitch and then who didn't swing at the first pitch curveball. That was big for me because if he didn't swing first pitch curveball, I could literally throw not my best curveball right down the middle. And I there's so many times. And Matt Stairs was a great guy, became a teammate of mine later on. He goes, dude, you would always throw me that first pitch curveball right down the middle. And I'm like, I, I always took the aspect, throws me that again. I'm going to hit the crap out of it. And I go, I, but you never would throw me that pitch again. And I'm like, well, that was by design. And I said, why wouldn't you sit? that pitch and he goes my pride i really want to hit your fastball first pitch if you threw a fastball i was ready for it you know i was gonna and i was like that's why i never well, and, it and, and if you sat on a curveball and popped it up like you yeah. you'd be like oh why'd i waste that why don't i just sit on a heater exactly so for me as closing i come into the series who is not swinging at the first pitch fastball and who's not swinging at the first pitch you know off speed you know first pitch strike but he, did you know, because I know watching this as a fan, even in the playoffs when they start rambling off the stats, there are certain guys, I want to say Utley and Jeter come to mind, where they mark their calendar. I'm going to swing at a first pitch in three weeks because I haven't in four weeks, and the pitcher knows. It. I mean, did you know who those guys were that, where you're checking to say, hey, he hasn't swung at a first pitch in a month, so it might, it might be time? Well, Lyle Overbay, I played with there in the Arizona Fall League, and he was with the Diamondbacks, and he was that guy that literally – 
I remember him saying this and then it would happen because I'm going to go up to bat and not swing at all. <laughs> and he would literally, every time he said that he would walk. And I remember there was times I asked him after the game, he goes, oh, were you not swinging this a bat? And he goes, yeah, where I walked him and it was a full count, but he was said he was a good hitter where I was like, okay, full count. I got to throw right in the corner. But is it, is it this time he's bed me that I, cause he hasn't swung the bat because here's the thing when a batter's up there, and you throw a really good pitch, and they just take it. You're almost like, did he see that? Right. Is he setting yeah. me up? Is he setting me up where he's waiting for that later in the count? I mean, or is he waiting for my breaking ball? You know, if you go fastball, fastball, you know, say on the outside corner to anybody, and they just take it. In the, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to throw a breaking ball in the dirt. You're thinking, is he waiting for that breaking ball? And then he just takes it like he wasn't going to swing no matter what. All of a sudden, you're like, what, what what is he doing? Like I must be on fire today, man. Oh, you man. start second so many, guessing yourself. So many mind games up there. Oh, it's such a mind game. So the mental game is so important, and it's just one of those things that he he was the only one that I knew that would literally go up to bat and go, okay, I'm swinging first pitch. Right. But the one guy that I always thought was very, and I don't know if you know this to be true, is um, Lance Berkman. You know how like if you're you throw a first pitch strike. If you're batting 300, if you're throwing first pitch strike, now all of a sudden your batting average goes to like 200. If the first pitch is ball, your batting average goes to 400. Sure. If you threw first pitch strike to Lance Berkman, his batting average went the opposite. It went, yeah. it went up. If you threw him a strike first pitch, he was going to hit 400. If you threw him a ball first pitch, he was going to hit 200. For some odd reason... That's yeah, the only I, guy. There's that, all those anomalies every once in a while. Dave Rob, funny, funny thing is Dave Roberts talk about not swinging at the first pitch. I faced him. He hit. It's Jeff Kent, Sean Green, and Dave Roberts are the three most uh, players the, that I faced the most. And I noticed over a while, like, dude, Dave never swings at the first pitch. So I finally started doing some background stuff, and it was like 91 percent of the time he doesn't swing at first pitch. So I was like. He's the calendar guy. I mean, yeah, so I told the catcher the one time, I'm like, hey, Dave Roberts does not swing at a first pitch. So, you know, we're calling fastball. Very first at bat, he puts down curveball. And I was like, what are we doing here? Like, we 91%. But then Dave got me one time. You know, you get in a game, and all of a sudden, you're like, he's not swinging at first pitch. There's a guy on second, caught me napping for a second. I'm like, well, he doesn't swing at first pitch. First pitch fastball down the middle, boom, base hit, run scored. Most of those guys that, that – you know, if there's runners on base, then everything changes. changes. Sure. I, I learned that early in my career that late in the game, guys change their – th That's a good point because late in the game, it's a whole different beast than the first three innings. Uh, you know, the, the whole closing aspect is it's, it's such – got to go out there and get three outs, which is probably the hardest three outs in baseball. So you, got, you, you may look at hitters maybe differently than I would look at hitters because there's a whole, you know, I might face a hitter four times. You yeah. got to face him once. Is the hitter taking a two strike approach from the first pitch? Is that what you guys are saying when there's no, a, I don't, well, here, here's the thing, a hitter in late in the game, he's got to get the job done right away. Sure. If in the first inning, if he's facing the starter, he could be like, okay, the starter's probably going to, you know, throw me a bunch of fastballs at my first to bat or say he does his first to bat next to bat. I know he's got some, he's got a curveball or change up or whatnot. He's probably going to change it up. You know, he's going to pitch me different every at bat. Well, the closer, you know, he's got, one, he's basically got one or two pitches. You know, every closer has basically two pitches. You know, every reliever has two, maybe three. The third's not that best pitch or whatnot. And the hitter goes out there and goes, I got to get him. I got to get him. Because if I, if I get out, especially a closer, if I get out, there's two outs. You know, I'm not getting another at bat. 
I have to get on base. I got to get on base or I got to hit that home run to tie the game or I got to do this. Where if in the first couple innings, you're like, I'm going to get another bat. How, how crucial um, is that first out of the ninth inning? Is that something that like when you go out there, it's like, if I get this first out, I'm in control? If it's a one-run game, it just – is that the it, difference? It, what's the different philosophy between a three-run save and a one-run well, save? I, I believe it, it dictates to their hitters. If you get the first guy out, they're all like, oh, it's over. You know, especially in a one-run game. If it's a three-run game, it's almost like if nobody gets, you know, the first two guys, there's an out. If you get the first guy on, but the next guy gets out, but nobody gets on second, then they're kind of like defeated. They're kind of like, okay, we got a guy on. But, you know, if you get the next guy out, it's big. But really, if you get the first guy out in the ninth inning, you could just see the whole dugout just kind of go, oh, man, we're, we're done. Yeah. You pitched in the National League for most of your career. So which Dodger uh, just gave you the biggest fits or, or were you, did you have the toughest time pitching around in all that time? No, I actually liked facing the Dodgers. <laughs> um, then, I don't think, well, it's been 30 years. So. You, know, you know, Russell Marson, Russell Martin was probably the most uh, – uh, Hardest guy to face. Interesting. I remember like Matt Kemp and Loney. I used to love them coming up. Like Kemp, I curl, man, you can't hit it. Yeah, there were some guys like that that you just some of the big hitters. You're just like, ah, I'm okay with them. Yeah, like oh, he, I throw a curveball day and he can't hit me. Like you know, Matt Holiday, Matt Holiday with Colorado, and then the you know stuff he did. And he was a great breaking ball hitter, and he could hit a fastball. But I never threw him a breaking ball because he could not hit my fastball. Uh, he could foul yeah. it off. Yeah. That was it, and I never threw him. And he was a good fastball hitter, too, and I never threw that, him. And that's, I think, the analytics. I think that's where we've talked about analytics a lot on the show, and it's like the like Vinny Castilla. You remember Vinny Castilla? One of the best fastballs, fastball hitters around, but I love throwing my fastball to him. And it wasn't like, you know, as long as I spot it in a good spot, you know, and try yeah. to take the sting out of the bat – I think analytics has become such a thing where it's like, well, this is the way you got to face because this is what the numbers say. Some pitchers just get some hitters out and some hitters just can't hit off some pitchers. And some guys do like, I remember Tim Linscombe when he was winning, you know, they were winning the world series with the giants and dominating um, uh, Goldie, uh, Paul Goldsmith over in Arizona. He was hitting like 500 off him. It was just amazing. He, and he had like, he was like 10 for, you know, 18 with eight home runs. Wow. You know, and everybody else, he's striking, Tim Linscomb striking everybody out. Paul gets up there, hit it. That's a half a season against one pitcher right there. So, yeah. hey, we got just a few minutes left. I want to I wanna ask you something that, um, you know, we're, we're not even 10 shows into this podcast. We're having such a good time. But one of the themes that's evolved is we love grinders on this show, guys that grinded in the minor leagues, that really earned it, that put their time in, that learned the game, had to learn the game to get their time. And I saw that you were drafted in 97 and it's been about what, seven years in the minor. So take us back to your minor league journey. One, like we love the grinding. So is there one story or one moment where you went, this is it. I got, I got it figured out. Now I had that aha moment or a win or a coach or some advice you got in the minors that really helped you. Well, I got drafted in 97 as a draft and follow with the Rays and they didn't want to sign me for anything. Next year I didn't get drafted. I walked on with the non-drafted with the New York Mets and, um, you know, I think it was the, the next spring training. Um, Tim Foley, it was our manager, and Bill Champion, they both played in the big leagues, was my pitching coach. And Is that St. Lucie, Mets? At the time, it was, uh, um, let's see, it was in Kingsport, Tennessee, and then I went to South Carolina. So it was okay. Kingsport, Tennessee team. 
but we were in St. Lucie in spring training. And the last, last three or four days of the season, Champ came to me and Bill came to me and goes, hey, stuck our, we stuck our neck out for you. We think you can become something, so don't let us, don't let us be wrong. And they weren't my manager the next year. And I asked him, what are you talking about? And he goes, the Mets philosophy in spring training, we're going to cut you. But if one person raises their hand and say, keep them, we'll keep them for, you know, three more days. Cause every three days we go and are we going to cut these guys? And he goes, me and Tim Foley had to raise our hand every three days on you. <laughs> every three days, we were the only two or one who had to raise our hand and say, no, I think this kid's got some. And as a non-draft free agent, there was a, there was nine, there was nine or 10 of us that year in Kingsport and all of them got released except for me. So it was kind of just that, like they see something and I believe in myself, even though nobody ever said I was really any good and I wasn't like this huge star anywhere, you know, celebrity or big draft guy. And I just, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And I know that I can get this done. And I never did it like, well, I'm going to do it because my high school, my my literally coach said I couldn't do it. My high school coach said I couldn't sure. do it just because I believed I could do it. So, and I just went out there and just believed in myself. And anytime I felt da- down, my dad would literally go, well, are you having fun? And you're know, like, well, not really, but he goes, <laughs> is baseball fun to you? And I said, yep. And he goes, well, keep doing it. Well, which season yeah. was it where you just caught fire and went, I got this now. Was it double a, was it high a, was it triple a, you know, um, in the minor leagues. Yeah. It was probably the year I met my wife, um, 2000. It was in St. That's, that's a great answer. So yeah. Well, here's, 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 here's <laughs> you got to remember the year. <laughs> here's the thing. In, in 99, I, yeah, I broke some records in, in low A, long season A, but low A. And I had Louis Natero was a hitting coach. He's still a hitting coach for the Mets in their farm system. And he goes, I'm a pitching coach in the Dominican. He's a Dominican guy. He goes, I think you can throw harder just do these, some of these exercises, basically like curl hops and throw long toss and, you know, basically pitch with my body more. And, um, cause I wasn't as herky jerky back then. And my hands were a little bit higher than where they were. And, uh, I said, okay, went all off season work and it came back to spring training. And I was one of two or three college kids with high school kids. So we had like first rounders and stuff. And there was like, you know, 30th rounder college guy, me and another, like, I think a uh, 10th rounder and a bunch of these high school guys, you know, like, Oh, I throw 99 miles an hour. And it's like, dude, you throw 94, you hit 99, <laughs> you know? And, or these, just these guys that oh, I can hit a ball 700 feet and yeah, but you strike out 700 times too, <laughs> you know, just make contact. Well, so we used to joke around with the pitchers and they'd be like, you know, Hey, we heard this guy's a first round pick. He throws, you know, consistently 97 miles an hour. You know, he's going to light up the Raider gun more than you. You're like, oh, I'm going to throw 98 today. So that coming into that spring in 2000, and I met my wife that offseason, um, guys were coming to me, Heath, you threw 97 today. Yeah, right. BS. This isn't true. Well, about, about a month into the season, <coughs> every you know, and I'm dominating, but I always struck one or two guys out per inning because I hit my spots really well. And I always felt like I threw hard, but I never did. And I always threw, you know, because in rookie ball, they would come to me and goes, Willie, there's this guy named Willie Suggs. It was like a second rounder. He goes, dude, I threw nothing below 96. I threw five innings and struck one guy out. You didn't throw anything above 88 and you struck the side out. How could you do that? And it was like, I started noticing like, oh, I, I hit my spots. You know, I, 
I throw my curveball in, up, down, left, right, change up, split, fastball, same, all just hit my spots, kind of like Greg Maddox did. Yeah. And then as I got older in the next couple of years in 2000, I'm still trying to hit my spots. About a month in the season, we didn't have gun, um, you know, the radar guns with the numbers up there in every, every ballpark like they have now. And sure. I went and looked at the scouting report and no one below it was like 95, 96, 97. I'm like, dude, am I throwing that hard? At first I didn't realize it was true. And then I just kind of kept it wraps and then just kind of kept looking at this, the, the gun chart. And it was like, dude, I am throwing the high nineties. Like this is unreal. Confidence goes through. And the a lot ceiling. of people at that time is before the whole steroids. Like, Hey, what are you on? <laughs> I'm doing nothing. Louie told me to do a couple things and I just like did I it. met my wife this off season. Yeah, That's what I'm on right now. So, and then, you know, so that, I think probably that was the year that I kind of like blossomed into. And it was like, I learned to really throw with my body and um, I got all my weight into it. And we all know I have a bunch of weight. <laughs> so it, it's in that herky jerky kind of came in where I come into spring and my first bullpen or some wouldn't be herky jerky because my arm wasn't necessarily ready. And I was throwing 88. 86 but then if i wanted to throw really hard i had that herky jerky and i got all my weight into it and then it was boom 96 97 but like when greg max said you know don't always throw you know i didn't want to be a guy throwing 98 98 98 and i take pride in my first half of my career my first five years or five and a half years my average fastball was 93.9 my second half was 93.3 yeah, so consistency. I, so my, cons, my consistent fastball was always 93, but I hit 100 miles an hour probably, I don't know how many times. I never knew it until later in my career. I looked at the, you know, the, the history books of the, all the stats and all that, but it was just one of those. It was probably the year 2000. And then when I got to the big leagues, my first year at Art Howe was, you know, I had a good ERA, you know, bouncing around um, mid-relief. And then my next two years with the Mets, they were like, no, you can't set up. You can't close. And you're only going to pitch in mop-up games. And it was almost like, well, do you know? And we, I actually had coaches tell me, you're a guy that is going to be in the minors. And when get, people get hurt, you're going to come to the big leagues. You're going to have a decent career. But you're never going to have a career in the big leagues. But you're just going to be bouncing back. That's kind of where we see you. You're like, I don't like that plan very much. Well, I got <laughs> traded to San Diego. And San Diego's like, you know, if Trevor Hoffman's down and our other guys are down, you're going to close for us. And I was like, really? I like you're that gonna, idea. You know? and, and so and, they, and, they believed in their guys. And everybody asked, what happened with the Mets in San Diego? What was the difference? The coaches believed in me. That was really the only difference. And then you went on a run in San Diego that was incredible and, yeah. and basically put you on the map as, as one of the best in the game. And that's, you know, it's been fun to kind of sit down and, and, and you know, get inside the mind of you and, and, yeah. and really awesome. think, you know, how, how somebody ticks. And like you said, a little screw loose. I know Heath really well. There's definitely a screw loose in there somewhere, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's, you're definitely one of a kind and, and, and it's great to, uh, to know you and be friends with you. But um, you know, let leading down the stretch, let's wrap this up. We got two little things. The Dodgers Jansen going down the stretch. Is he, this is your, I want to see your prediction. Is he going to turn it around, taking it in the playoffs, and be that guy that he has been the last couple of years? Can he flip a switch like that? You know, can a closer do that that's been as great as he's been? Can he flip the switch and say, I'm getting it done? If Dave doesn't change a thing, I believe Jansen can do it. But if Dave changes something, you know, they go, hey, we, we want to tweak something, 
it's not going to happen. And it goes back to where you said that it's doubt meant, in his yeah. mind. He might go, well, they don't. But believe I believe me. Jansen can turn it on like that and go, okay, it's playoff time. Let's you play. referenced it twice, once generically, and then you gave an example. The real killer is when you get yanked, right? Like when you're, oh, yeah. when you're on the mound and you get yanked. Everything else you said is kind of, oh, it doesn't make you feel great. But the minute the coach comes and gets the ball from you when you're the closer – uh, there's a whole different situation. When, right? you, when, the coach, when the coach comes in and gives us a closer and you haven't blown the save yet. Yeah, that's a statement. All, all of a sudden it's like, this guy doesn't have my back anymore. That's you're not the, you're not, he, he's basically saying you're not the guy anymore. Yeah, you're not the guy. Wow. Yeah, well, let's, let's hope he gets back on track and the Dodgers, you know, roll into the playoffs and, and, and do what they're supposed to do. Um, Seriously. Brett, I have one. I want to go to World Series game. One okay. bit, quick trivia for you. Brett and I graduated from El Dorado High School, and I noticed in the notes here that Heath was the National Baseball Congress Player of the Year, not playing for the El Dorado Broncos because they pronounce it a little differently there, Heath. What city was that in, and what El was the name of that city? It was El Dorado. El Dorado. Is that in Texas? <laughs> No, that was in Kansas. Kansas, yeah, I remember when my brother played. So he said, and he said he's technically. I'll put this in air quotes. El Dorado guy, just I'm like an El us. Dorado guy. Yeah. So El Dorado, I remember that. They're like, you're pronouncing it wrong. I said, no, folks, you're pronouncing it wrong. Uh, when I went out there, they were like, you're pronouncing this wrong. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, with league, the Jayhawk man. League, I remember that. That yeah. was awesome. Well, with each uh, guest at the end of the show, we like to uh, we play this little game. Um, we call it Strike Three. You're out. Strike Three. You're out. So you have the ability to strike out anything you want in the world of baseball from little league to the big leagues and everything in between so you tell me strike three you're out strike three you're out is all this baseball analytics in the big leagues you know spin rotation the shift all this stuff because whatever happened to this guy's a gamer whatever happened to i believe this guy is due this guy's a big game pitcher you know i'm gonna put this starter in or this guy i just believe that he's gonna get a hit right here there's none of that anymore. It's all numbers. Right. It's all this and it's all that. And, you know, they've only been tracking baseball for the last, with all these numbers for 20 years. And how long has baseball been around? Over 100 Hundreds. years. So they're only taking like 5 to 10% of baseball. And, yeah, there's all these stats that it does work, but they never tell you the stats when it doesn't work. You know, let's look at Moneyball. Everybody, you know, is basically trending off Moneyball. They, you know, if everybody, everybody loves the movie, but never talked about the three best starters in the game at the time, Zito, Mulder, and Hudson, never <laughs> talked about those guys <laughs> at all. Never talked about Eric Chavez, the best third baseman in the game. And then they also said in a long period of time, it does work, but in short, it doesn't. Then why isn't Oakland always first place? I was just going to say, why haven't they won the World Series like or 10 no, times? Let's just say not first place. You know, you know how Atlanta didn't win the World Series? They like won once, but they were in first place, won their division like 15 right. years in a row. Yeah. Oakland doesn't do that. But everybody believed in this because it's like – it's almost like fantasy football. Now everybody's going with their, these college guys that all these numbers – I can go into this baseball world and just sell, and I don't even know baseball, but I can. I know numbers. Great point. It's more of a rebuild. Strike that out. A long-term strategy. I like. That I believe stuff. in ten years, all that analytics is going to be gone, mm-hmm. or it, it it won't be there as much for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Hey, this was awesome. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, we're gonna have you back again sometime, Brett. Awesome insight. But hey, this is the Dodger dudes. Uh, we have Heath Bell as our guest. Heath, thanks so much for coming on the show, bud. Hey, thanks for having me. Bring me back when the Dodgers are in the World Series, so I can go and cheer on. Dave and finally win a ring. Yeah, right. There you go. All right, guys. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Dodger Dudes Show with the former Dodger pitcher Brett Tomko and Josh the Duker Luke. Whether you're at the stadium, on your couch, or at work, don't forget to interact with the hosts on social media at the Dodger Dudes on Twitter and Facebook. That's the Dodger Dudes on both Twitter and Facebook. Check out other SoCal sports podcasts at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Now go vote on our Twitter and Facebook fan poll and tune in again soon. Game on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.